Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Welcome. How you doing? I hope your new year is going great. Thank you so much for all of your support and your comments. You guys are incredible. It's been so amazing. And this year has started off so wonderfully. And I can't even tell you how incredible your letters and emails and comments and reviews have been. Uh, It's just so meaningful, and thank you so much. And this year, I'm very, very excited. We have so many great interviews coming up, and the one today is no exception with Bob Lefsitz. And if you don't know who that is, you're going to really, really enjoy it, more so than many, many podcasts you might have heard throughout your lifetime. This guy is incredible, and I think this is only his second podcast he's ever done in his lifetime. But before I get into that, I just want to let you know that thank you again for clicking on the Amazon banner on the barrycats.com website. It's so great because Amazon uh, allows you to buy anything you want, doesn't cost you anything extra, and They give a little kickback to the Barricats Jewish Boy College Fund, and I'm very grateful to you for using it and Amazon for allowing me to put it on my website. Before I get started with the cold open, this is going to be kind of a unique cold open because I 
normally look at my guest and think of something and go forward and tell a story. But instead, I'm going to do something a little bit different. And I'm going to read one of his columns because Bob writes some of the most amazing blogs that you'll ever hear or ever read in your lifetime on the Lefsitz letter. You just go to his website. That's L as in Larry, E, F as in Frank, S as in Sam, E, T as in Tom, Z as in zebra.com, lefsitz.com, and you'll be blown away. Incredible. And before I read what I want to read, and I've gone through hundreds of these things, I just want to let you know, because you guys are a part of my life, and today is the anniversary, the first anniversary of my mom passing away in this past year. It has been a unique transition for me, because I've never experienced anything like this before, and many of you listening to this podcast have. But I haven't, and I miss my mother tremendously, and I miss her guidance, her love. I miss so many things, but I hold with me so many great memories, namely a few things that come to mind. One, her sitting at the kitchen table, writing handwritten Christmas cards to everyone she knew. And it's inspired me every Christmas to always send out as many cards as I can instead of emails and try to be as personal as I can. Two, I always remember the impact she made on me in terms of going the extra mile. Didn't matter what time I came home, day or night, there would always be a hot meal waiting for me or something to let me know that she felt that I was one of the most special people in her life. And I always remember that. And lastly, the thing I remember most was her always letting me know that there was something good about every person. And no matter what was going on, you had to realize that. And to that end, you also had to realize the adversity that you were always going to face from the people in your life that even though there were good things about them, that for some reason they brought negativity to your life and hate to your life. But my mother always tried to find something good within every person and shared with me that I should do the same, but always let me know that I couldn't let things bother me. And I remember so much that drilled into my head. And so... Without further ado, I think I'd like to read one of my favorite columns of Bob Lefsitz from December 13th, 2013. The title, 
dealing with hate. Number one, never ever respond. That's the hater's goal to entrap you, draw you into a conversation wherein you have to justify your complete existence. You can never ever win. Furthermore, the hater's friends will pile on. Read if you must, but never acknowledge you've done so. Two, research the hater, especially on Twitter. See how many followers they have. Fewer than you. Otherwise, they wouldn't bother to hate. Also, check their number of tweets. If someone's tweet count is in the double-digit thousands, laugh and move on. First of all, almost no one is going to see their hate. Second, the reason they're hating is to justify their existence. They're looking for attention. Who else would waste so much time blasting their thoughts into the wilderness? Three, Google the hater. This usually makes you feel better because you find out the hater is a loser because winners don't have time to hate. They're too busy trying to win. Four, see it as a badge of honor. If someone is hating you, you've made it. Read it. Anybody who says they don't read the words of their critics is an optimistic pussy who is afraid of their own shadow. As the cliche goes, you can't embrace the good without the bad. You can't acknowledge the love without the hate. The truth is we're all equal. Even if you're winning, it's only temporary. On a scale that will cease to exist. You'll die. Standards change. Do it because you love it. Know that criticism comes with the territory. 6. Don't change who you are. When the terrorists have won, oops, then the haters have won. I'm not saying you can't learn anything from your critics, but the more successful you become, the more hating you're subjected to, and the natural response is to pull back. Don't do that. Then the essence of your art is eviscerated. People love you for that essence. Change for the haters, and you're disappointing the lovers. 7. Have a sense of humor. We all have a tone of voice. We all have expressions we employ. We don't like them to be pointed out. We don't like to be reminded of them. But it's the nature of society. If you can't laugh at yourself, life is going to be tough. Then again, there's no need to fall upon your sword in the face of a tsunami of hate. Laugh, then have a backbone. Because your backbone is part of your appeal. 8. Understand the hater mentality. They want to drag you down into the hole they're in. If you succumb, they stop hating. They made you irrelevant and go on to hating someone else. Hating is not about you, but a frustration embodied in the hater that he or she is not beautiful or successful, winning whatever. That's all they've got. Their hate. You've got so much more. 9. Vitriol is no response. If you must respond, and as number one states above, you never should, so you're breaking the number one rule. Don't use expletives and don't shout. Twist your language and become sarcastic, stating that the hater is correct, ultimately neutralizing the hate, 
or embrace the hate and acknowledge it. Yes, I'm a worthless human being with no reason to exist. Thanks for pointing that out. The hater is looking for a fight. If you're not fighting, they move on to someone else. 10. Hate is invisible until you amplify it. Not many people watch Jimmy Kimmel. Most were unaware of Kanye's fashion comments, but by reaching out and responding to the hate, Kanye made everybody aware of his name and statements. It hurts when you see the hate. It's personal, but it's not personal to anyone else, and almost everybody else ignores it. Yes, Google might tell you you're an idiot, but who else is Googling your name? 11. Democracy doesn't rule online. Anyone can play, but that doesn't mean anyone can be heard. That's the story of the past two years, how the winners have pulled away from the losers and the losers don't like it. That they just can't place their stuff online and make it anymore. So who do they rail against? You. The winners. 12. Retweets might mean nothing. Some people have clubs, not everybody. There are some lonely rogues, and they like nothing more than to slap each other on the back as they pile on. You see this in your Twitter feed and think the whole world is talking about you. But dig deeper and realize that it's the three nerds from high school who suddenly have a voice. But just like in high school, no one's paying attention to them. And no one is listening. 13. Haters are professionals. Haters don't hate once and then stop. They hate and hate and hate because what they're looking for is acknowledgement. It's unreasonable, but it's fact. See it as their problem, not yours. 14. Few haters will say it to your face. They love the anonymity of the web, especially in comment threads. Put them in front of the star and they'll get all googly-eyed. Not all of them. Some of them are so maladjusted that they will just never stop hating until they win. Big time. Which they can't because they've got to see themselves as outside underdogs. And to win, you have to learn how to be an insider. Winners have relationships. People who will aid them in their endeavors. Haters have no army except for the silent loners afraid of their reflections. They're on a subliminal trip to nowhere. 15. Hate peters out. Those websites, those fake Twitter accounts, they die because they're one-note jokes, and you're so much more than that. The hate might be clever, but clever never lasts. It's one-note for one time. And lastly, 16, hating is like spam. It will never completely go away, but it will be minimalized into irrelevance. Seemingly, everybody uses Gmail these days, which employs the great Postini filter. Spam isn't a thing of the past, but it's now an occasional nuisance instead of a headache. Hate is peaking because as the winners pull away from the losers online, Everybody can see the haters for what they are. Disgruntled people clamoring for attention who usually have nothing of value to say. 
Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz's semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now I'm on the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Before I get started, I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I'd ever done in my life. It centered on a man who has been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy. And his story is unbelievably extraordinary. He started as a runner for the mob in Chicago when he was in his early 20s, and he was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas to help them get where they needed to go, and he ended up being the guy on the grassy knoll who took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. And I'm telling you, go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary. It will blow you away. And in honor of everybody who does go and get a copy of this special, what I'm going to do is I'm going to choose one person randomly from that group of people, and I will invite them to a live podcast to be there in person with my guest, be able to meet them, ask any questions they want. And if they're not from this area, if they're out of the country or out of state, I will Skype them in, I will FaceTime you in, and it'll be something you'll be privy to before anybody else gets to hear the podcast. So go to ikilljfk.com, pick up this documentary. I guarantee you, never been seen before, and it will blow you away. 
Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And today is a day that will live in infamy for me <laughs> because I have wanted to interview this man since I first read his first blog and he has blown me away. And I'm talking about Bob Lefsitz. And I should share that I'm not really a big reader. You know, in this business, you have to read scripts, half hour, hour, you have to read movie scripts. And when I was in high school, if somebody gave me the Thomas Hardy book, Tess of the D'Urbavilles or whatever it was, it would struggle through stuff like that. But for some reason, your writing just spoke to me and it blew me away. And I just can't stress enough that this man has a way with words in terms of connecting the dots of the music business, the entertainment business, and life. And it's something that I've never experienced before, and I look forward to seeing his words. I look forward to the 10th blog that says, what kind of fucked up world do we live in? And all sorts of different things. And I am thankful to Bob for being here because I've been trying to get him on the show for probably a year and a half. And he is finally here with his gold Coca-Cola. Thank you so much, Barry, for the caffeine-free Diet Coke and a gold can. You are welcome. You're from where, Barry? I'm from Longmeadow, Massachusetts, Long which is Meadow, near where we, you're we from. Connected, and I'm from uh, Connecticut, but I know Longmeadow, Massachusetts because it's a home of friendly ice cream. Friendly ice cream. Actually, Wilbraham, Massachusetts, exactly. but the guy lives in Longmeadow. Right. My fa you're actually correct. My father... Among the many things he did in the late 50s and early 60s, he scouted locations for friendly ice cream. He did. Absolutely. Two things. He owned a liquor store, too. So in my house, there was always soda. Ergo, my caffeine-free Diet Coke. But there was rum along with that oh, soda. Oh, believe me, there was any alcohol you needed. But I just want to say, you are so unlike anything I imagined. Because I wasn't going to Google anything on you. I didn't want to see any good, photos. Good, good. I don't believe in preparation. But I prepare a lot, but I didn't want to prepare to meet you because I didn't know. And I pictured you as somebody who was not huggable and lovable. Well, maybe I'm huggable and lovable. Wait a little while. won't be that huggable and lovable. <laughs> I didn't picture you as, let's say, Kid Rock might have pictured you in 2007 well, or I, Gene Simmons in 2009. Sure, although we're on good terms. You know, I'm sure I could say something that would piss him off. He's got a short fuse. Uh, he, of course, is from an upper middle class. By the time my father finished, we were upper middle class. We certainly did not start that way. So maybe that's how we have the commonality. But thank you for, uh, if only everyone saw me as huggable and lovable. No, you are. The thing about you is, and I hope you don't mind this. I hope you don't <laughs> reach over and kill me. You have this look about you like you've actually killed people in your lifetime, but you have this lovable way about you. Well, I certainly haven't killed anybody, but I'll have to contemplate that. And you talk about being old all the time. The reason I talk about being old, let me start, you know, there's a lot of stuff on this. You know, whether it be Bill Maher talking about he yearns for the old school Republicans, the wise men who are into business and know what was going on. Certainly, I'm a baby boomer. We grew up and... Our parents had no idea what was going on in the 60s, and we ruled. But once we had children, well, we flipped in a couple of ways. Reagan legitimized greed, so suddenly we came from love your brother to fuck your brother, okay? And then we were the most hands-on parents of all time, even, even I don't have children. It's just through observation. None that you know of. Believe me, none. You, I mean, <laughs> this is an interesting uh, left turn. You ever get scared? that your girlfriend was pregnant? Only when she told me she was scared. Well, I, 
most everybody I've had sex with has had an abortion. And usually sometime early in the relationship when this comes out, they say, I don't know if I could have another one. So I was involved with this woman and she had said that and then her period didn't come. I was flipped right the fuck out. I went to the library up there on Montana Avenue in Santa Monica. You know, what are the odds that she's not pregnant? Okay, because it's ultimately her decision. And then, of course, in this particular case, she was not. But then I became the birth control police. Now, I'm aware of some people become pregnant even though they're on birth control or they use other types of protection. In most cases, they are not. If you say, did you use birth control every time you had sex? Well, not when she was on her period or not this or not that. After that experience, I used birth control. I was the birth control police. This is, you know, a different era with the diaphragm. I'll get the diaphragm. I'll put the jelly in. It's like, I don't <laughs> want to go through that experience once again. So believe me, there aren't any, any children out there that I'm unaware of. But just going back to the age thing. So the story is, then we decided to emulate our children. And we dieted down even skinnier than our children. And youth became everything when the reality is our genes do not know that we say we're young. So what does it mean to have time passing? And what I've learned is there are, to quote Gail Sheehy, there are passages in life and nobody gets out of here alive. And instead of denying, you have to own it. It's an interesting thing. No one talks about it. No one, just like the other thing, everyone reveres the youth. Two things about that. I'm so much happier now than I was when I was younger. There's certainly, not one part of your life that was happier then? I mean, I certainly had peaks. But needless to say, we have the issue of we have all this at our fingertips. You don't have to worry about getting bored, the internet, cable TV, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you're more comfortable in your own skin. You're finding out. I mean, how many times in my 20s did I go to clubs, did I go to bars looking for action I didn't find and get really lost? So as you get older, you're more comfortable in your skin. You're also much wiser. You know, this is something I was thinking of writing about. It's like, I'm going to write about, there are a couple of lawsuits on Spotify. You live long enough, you know, that's horseshit. If you have perspective, these are essentially nuisance suits and they're going to be irrelevant in the long term. Where if you're 20, you go, well, this is a big deal. Okay, so to run some of this by me. This is how brilliant in my mind this guy is, because he talks about young and old. And I had a feeling he would talk about this, and I did my preparation. I've never had 67 pages in front of me for any guest in my life. I well, mean, let's see if he can find it. But I got going. it right here, everybody. Ready? This is Bob Lefsitz's column, Young Slash Old, April 20th. 2014. I remember writing it. Young are friendly. They'll talk to anybody. Old won't talk to anybody they don't know. <laughs> Young believe they're all in it together. Old all about status. They want everybody to know they're better than they are and will po pony up for VIP access or anything that separates them from the hoi polloi, especially if it's visible. Young, go to the gig to have a good time. It's about hanging with your friends, known and unknown. It's a license to party. Old, go to the gig to hear the band. They know at least a few songs, if not all of them, unless, of course, they got the tickets through Gold Star or another discount operation. Old people love a deal. They'll sit through almost anything if it's cheap enough. <laughs> Young, don't remember a day when hats were not cool. Old, some will wear hats, a bunch still will not, other than baseball caps. They still remember Kennedy being inaugurated, <laughs> sans chapeau, or the influence thereof. 
young, loved to dress up. Halloween was always a national holiday to them. They're unafraid of looking stupid. Old will dress up on occasion, but are too inhibited to look stupid. Young, they let their freaks flags fly. If you're odd, you can still be included. Old, you don't want to be the victim of derision. They're judging their brethren all the time. They haven't seen each other as equal since Woodstock. <laughs> Young, optimistic. Old, pessimistic. Young, laissez-faire. Old, afraid if they don't pay attention, they're going to get screwed. Young, want a photo. Old, want an autograph. Young, see marijuana as part of the culture. Old, still see marijuana as cool. Young, don't need a fancy car. If they need a car at all, they want to go places, but they're willing to use every mode of transportation. Old, see a car as a status item. Young, want to travel. Old, want to stay put. Young, need to be there. Old, don't need to be anywhere. Young, listen to all kinds of music. Old, only listen to music they already know. Young, will live with a broken cell phone screen. Old, get their screen replaced. Young, think that money comes and goes. Old, think if you don't hold on to the money you've got, you're going to run out in the future. Young, smile. Old, scowl. Young, don't talk much politics. Old, talk politics all the time. Young, believe if you skip the dentist, your teeth will be okay. Old, only skip the dentist or doctor if they can't afford it. Young, think they still know everything, at least everything necessary to live. Old, are so much wiser than the young but the young won't listen to them. Young don't want to be old. Old are dying to be young. Well, you know, I will say what the musicians always say. After I write it, I never reread it. So it's so strange to hear it. This is going to sound, there's not a word unhumble, but uh, there's the Breakthrough Todd Rundgren album, which was his third solo album. He was in a band before that called Naz. But the breakthrough was a double album called Something Anything. The first three sides, a la the initial McCartney solo album entitled McCartney, he played all the instruments himself. But the fourth side, he had an entire band. But it started out with him saying, legendarily on the fourth side of Something Anything, we're changing the name of the album to Send Money. Just send money. So I'm reading, I go, that's phenomenal. As I say, and it made an impact on you. I, I remember I wrote it, but it's way deep in my past. And, you know, wh where's my cash from that? But that was my reaction. Well, Thank you. Well, I'm going to be reading a few other ones during this podcast, and you're going to be unhumbled, if that's a word. This is kind of like, this is your life, if you remember that old TV show. But instead of whipping out your friends, they whip out the old shit you wrote. It is. Now, if you don't mind, I'm just going to give you the proper introduction. Wait, are we going to leave the intro in the middle, or are you cut the intro no, back I on the top? cut it back in the Okay, end. I like it in the middle. Keep going. I'll do whatever you want. Well, I don't care. Fine, I'm fine. I like, anything. I, I, liked, I liked how we, we, we went off topic, and now you're coming we are. back. We're going to go back and, no, and forth. It, but I'm I loved it, the, the intro. I've never done it. The intro's 10 minutes in. I think that's great. I'm having the most fun of my life. This is fantastic. <laughs> I asked Bob for his bio. I asked 125 guests for their bio. They email it over. Not Bob. Bob says, yeah, I'll come over. We'll riff about the bio. <laughs> so I'm going to just give him a brief bio because I'd rather hear him talk more. So here we go. Bob Lefsitz is an American music industry analyst and critic and author of the email newsletter and blog, The Lefsitz Letter. The newsletter has hundreds of thousands of subscribers and myself being one of them. And I turn it on to every single person I Thank know. You. He grew up in Fairfield, Connecticut and is a graduate of Middlebury College where he majored in art history. 
which will allow you to wait tables in any city in this country. He moved to Los Angeles in the 70s after earning his law degree from Southwestern Law School, and he worked as an entertainment business attorney and briefly as the head of Sanctuary Music's American division. He has worked as a consultant to many major labels, and I'm not going to say anything else about him other than to say this guy is one of the most amazing men you will ever talk to, ever meet, ever hear. Please welcome my guest today, Bob Lefsitz. Are we going to, you know, cut in the applause? Yes, we'll <laughs> cut in the applause. I have so many pages here, Bob. Go, go. You got me here. Here it's I am. crazy. Go for like, it. I don't even know what to do anymore. But I want to ask you something before I ask okay. anything. Okay. All your stories right. are drowning in the ocean. You can only save one that's your holy shit highlight chapter of whatever book you might write. What is that that maybe nobody else has heard before? For those people who don't know me, I've been doing this for 30 years. And um, I've gone through varying phases. So there's two ways to answer that question. One way is to say what I felt resonated most with the audience. Another thing is something I feel personally strong about it. I certainly know the first, the answer to the first thing. You can tell both. I don't have a specific answer to the second, unfortunately. But the first thing is I went to see, uh, this is a well-known uh, concert. Uh, how many years ago is this? This is probably 2007. Uh, Paul McCartney is promoting an album, Memory Almost Full, and he played it Amoeba. And they called me up to come down. And so I'm like, what? Who called you up? The PR guy in this particular case. Why does Paul McCartney need a PR guy to call anybody to come down? Isn't he a little uh, beyond well, that? Let's be clear. I mean, most people who want to hire a PR person want what we call ink, which in this case can be, you know, something on the internet, et cetera. And they can't get any. Then there's the complete other side who uses a PR person to part the waters, field the question. Like my friend Larry Solters, who's, you know, the Eagles publicist. Also Charlie Sheen. He dealt with Charlie Sheen revealing that he was HIV positive on today's show. It's not like he's looking for opportunities. He is more parting the waves. So needless to say, when Paul, like everybody else, when Paul McCartney is doing the Amoeba show, he is doing it not for his health, but to promote a record. So they want to get as much coverage as possible. But the PR, the very highly skilled PR person in this particular case, his thing is more keeping people out. Now, in my particular case, I will not ask for a ticket. I mean, it's one thing if you're a friend of mine and we're going, whatever, but I'm not going to track down Paul McCartney, whatever. I, I'm the antithesis of the person saying, you know, I need to be there, whatever. So there are people like me where the guy has to, you know, get a hold of you. Will you come? And I will. And I won't guarantee that I'll write anything, whatever, but just continuing the thing, you know, he started off with Drive My Car. He's got the best band going, even at this late date. It's been the same guys for 10 years. And then he dealt with a heckler better than anybody I've ever seen because he's Paul McCartney. And I went home and I wrote about it at two in the morning. And years later, I would hear about that. So that really is kind of a defining moment. Uh, in terms of something that I could save, I can think it would be telling the story of my life. I remember very specifically in the 90s telling the story of getting in a fight at the Million Dollar Cowboy Bar in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And there are other stories where I've told uh, about my divorce 
And other times, you know, in, in personal experiences, listening to records, to me, those are the most, the closest to me and the most truthful. So one of those would be the one. Got it. And do you feel like telling one of those or you feel uncomfortable telling one of those? Those are written experiences, which are very different, you know, very different from being a comedian or a storyteller right. or even Spalding. Or those are written experiences only after you write about them. I could wind myself up and tell one of these stories, but in order to have an impact, it would have to be lengthy. Like I can tell you that I got in this fight at the Million Dollar Cowboy Bar, and I can tell you the facts in a minute, but... Does this appear like a short-form show to you? But as I say, I mean, just to even hit the highlights, just to prove the point, it'd be longer. Okay, it was the worst winter in Vermont. <laughs> I was in college. Burlington? No, this is in Middlebury, Middlebury, Vermont. As I say, it was an art history major where I went to college, I had to write a thesis. And quasi as a reward to myself, I went to Jackson Hole, which was a relatively unknown ski area at that point in time, 1974. And um, I got the last flight in for four days. because, And I was lucky even that it snowed for the next four days. I stayed at a place called the Hostel X, which was $10 a night. This was literally the last week of the season in April. Not that I knew that, although thank God my travel, my travel agent knew nothing. I could have booked and the ski area could have been closed. But the reason it was $10 a night, there were up to four people in the room at night. So one night they put a cop in from New York and it creeped me out so much, not because he was a cop from New York, but who he was. They got me in my own room again alone because it was so late in the season. And I'm riding the aerial tramway. I meet a guy and the guy's very interesting. He was a sommelier in Maryland, and he bought a van, and he was driving around the West as a ski bum. In reality, he was a dope dealer, but he knew a lot about alcohol, and I befriended this guy, and I remember we went, the name of the hotel was the Seventh Soldier and whatever. There are a few more. There's a Four Seasons there now. There were only a handful of hotels back then in Teton Village where the ski area is, and we had Chateau de Pop. I don't drink anymore, but I remember he recommended this would be perfect. One night I was here for a week. He goes, we're going to go to Jackson. We got to, you got to go to this million dollar cowboy bar. We have to go drink golden Cadillacs. So that's about a seven mile drive. We go in this particular case it's called the million dollar cowboy bar because inlaid into the bar are all these silver dollars. And you've known this guy a total of how many hours? Maybe two days. Two days. Okay. And you're a college age or just out yes, of college? Yes, I'm 20 years old. I'll be 21 in a few and weeks. And how old is he? probably two years older than I am. Got it. And uh, we're drinking Golden Cadillacs, which I had no idea what they were, but ultimately they were in Alice Cooper's alcohol cookbook in Cream Magazine. Could you tell our audience what's in them? I really would have to look it up. I don't remember. I remember what it looked like. It looks kind of like a white, not like a white Russian, but kind of a yellow milky thing, whatever. And we're having a good time drinking. Let's be clear. This is the first week of April of 1974, not as there are essentially no one at the ski area. This is between tourist seasons in Jackson, Wyoming. If you know Jackson, Wyoming, you know that it's at the southern end of the Grand Teton National Park. During the summer, it is overrun with tourists. I've been there during the summer. But in the winter, it's essentially empty. So this is a very large space, this million-dollar cowboy barn. It's still there today. It's a legendary place. It's like, you know, 150 by 50, whatever. And in the first week of April on a weeknight, there aren't many people there. How many people are? 20? Okay. And you get tanked up, as I was. How many of these drinks did you have? Let's put it this way. I could, I could drink 
we're not talking one guy, one, you know, I had, I had a lot. Okay. I was not. So it equaled your subscribers. No. So what happens is, uh, you get tanked up. You're with your friends. You get, um, energized. And I'm still not telling this fashion with as much detail because I'd like to get more into the guy, whatever. But they had one of those little dance floors in the middle of the bar. And I go and I go to dance and there's like two women and one guy, whatever. And I'm dancing with the women. Let's be clear. This is rock dancing. I'm not touching them. I'm, you know, but let's be clear. I'm making eyes. I'm trying to become, and I'm there dancing. Are you a good dancer? No. I usually only dance when I'm motivated and I was motivated. Um, I'm dancing there. So all of a sudden, two cowboys. Let's be clear. They're cowboys. They got their cowboy hats on, et cetera. They walk over to the dance floor, and they literally push me down to the ground. This is not as good a story as the night I got arrested for drunk driving the night John Lennon got shot. But continuing with this particular <laughs> story, they knocked me down. Because when I got shot and the police knocked me down, knocked the wind out of me. This did not knock the wind out of me. But it's like, holy shit. And they start threatening me. And my friend of 48 hours, he he's a bigger guy than him. He comes over, grabs me, and pulls me, and I stumble. We run out of the bar, which is a long distance. We get into his van. He turns it, the engine, and it doesn't turn over. <laughs> we are freaking the fuck out. We're going to die. These guys are going to beat the shit out of us. Then he turns it again, and it turns over, and we blast out of there. Eventually, we laugh, and we're driving on the road back to Teton Village, which is flat, and there's a million stars, big sky country, great song, and he says, pick a tape. This is the, He had cassettes. This is most people still had eight tracks, and I remember picking Bonnie Raitt's, taking my time, and queuing it up, which was difficult with a cassette, to hear I Feel the Same, which features a Lowell George slide thing, and it's an indelible moment, and I, when I wrote it, I wrote it better than I told it, but I could tell it even better, but it'd be 20 minutes and we're not going to do a four-hour podcast. No, we're not, but I appreciate you talking about that. So I want to go way back in your life, if you don't mind, which I like to do. So take me back to where you grew up, what kind of family you had, your parents, and take me to the moment where you were inspired to get into this crazy business. That's like going to the psychiatrist, although we're focusing more on the present. Okay, let me lay it out. Fairfield, Connecticut. When I grew up in Fairfield, Connecticut, no one commuted to New York. It was 50 miles from New York. But people do that now. They even commute a little further from Fairfield. Fairfield has two sides of town. There's a melting pot side, and then there's a waspy rich side. I grew up on the melting pot side, not like the average person here to say, oh, look at me, you know, I'm scum of the earth and whatever, blah, blah, blah. That's just the truth. I'm the, and I went to college, where I went to college, 45% of the people went to prep school. And there were people who grew up in my town, i never known them, et cetera. But just painting the picture, there were some projects where I lived, whatever, but it's very much a melting pot school. I uh, grew up in a split level home in a suburban tract. So you were kind uh, of considered lower middle class? No, I'm straight middle class. It was the got 60s, it. very different. My father did the real estate for the house. He got a deal. The house when he bought it, this is the 50s. House was listed for 18-something. He got it for 16-something. So put that in your mental hopper, you know. And But my mother was a culture vulture. So we would go to New York frequently. As I say, you could do that very easily, go to the plays. Also, in my family, there was unlimited amount of money for arts things. If I wanted to go to the movies, if I wanted to go to concerts, my parents had money for that. If I might want 
some physical object, whatever, or want my parents to buy me a car, that's never going to happen. Why do you think that was? I think that's my mother's values. Just to go one step deeper, although if you met my father, you would not think this was the case. Um, legendarily, and you'll know from your area, the, the initial shed in America was is at Tanglewood in western Massachusetts. That's right. Beautiful, beautiful outdoor. And I was there last summer bringing back the memories. And uh, there are sheds everywhere, but they're really not like Tanglewood, the home of the uh, Boston Symphony. I don't think our audience knows what a shed is. So Shed, historically, was an outdoor venue in the summer where there's a roof over part of the audience. And um, the reason I bring it up is my parents met. My father picked up my mother hitchhiking, leaving Tanglewood. So there you have it in terms of the arts. As I said, my father was a guy on the liquor store, did some commercial real estate, and then was a real estate appraiser. So you not- are here because of a hitchhiker being picked up. That's an. Inter- I never quite put it that way, but that's. Those I my- don't know anybody in my entire life who has a story where their parents hooked up and got married and stayed together because one picked up the other as a hitchhiker. Well, needless to say, and it's a different era today, our, my parents could never say, don't hitchhike. <laughs> and they didn't back in the 60s when everybody hitchhiked. Did you hitchhike? Absolutely. In the 60s, everybody hitchhiked. So uh, I had one bad experience in the picking people up because you felt guilty if you didn't pick people up. I had a bad experience in the 70s in L.A. and then stopped doing that. Not that I hitchhiked across America, but I hitchhiked to Cape Cod. What was the bad experience? It was at the intersection, which still looks identical, of Wilshire Boulevard and Federal, and I saw these two guys, and I felt I had to pick them up. One was carrying a skateboard, and they got in the car, and they started telling me where to go. And I wasn't going that far, but you got to go here, you got to do this. And I started to freak out, and then they got intense. Then all of a sudden, they said, stop here and let us out. And I, and I did, and I never picked up another hitchhiker. Tell you the day I stopped hitchhiking. I was in high school hitchhiking home. A man picked me up. The door is locked, and he put his hand on my leg. And said, we're going to my place or something like that. And I remember using humor to diffuse things because I just love comedy and made a few jokes. And when he stopped at the stoplight, he thought I was joking around with him. And I just opened up and ran out and I was gone. Never hitchhiked again. Well, that's a horrible story, but it does remind me of one story, hitchhiking to Cape Cod, where the guy picked me up in a Rolls Royce, which I thought <laughs> was pretty funny. But just answering your question, you know, I grew up in the 60s when not only were things changing, but it was about testing limits. You know, the Army ripped off our slogan, you know, be all that you can be. And music drove the culture, and it was political turmoil, and we could do a whole podcast just on that era. But then I went to college. I went to Middlebury for a couple of reasons. One, if you've been there, I dare you to to find a more beautiful place, okay? Two, it was co-ed when a lot of competitive colleges were just starting to go co-ed. I want to give myself a good chance sexually. And the college had its own ski area. Of all the colleges in America, this was the one where you could ski most. And I took advantage of that. And the irony is, at this late date, if I look back at my college experience, what did I do in college that I still do today? I go skiing. So it's like, hey, it kind of worked out. The college literally had its, it still does, has its own ski area called uh, the Middlebury College Snowball, which is 14 miles away. I could have gone to school in New York City, and I didn't. I didn't go to school at Columbia because a guy I knew from a summer program wanted to room with me, and I didn't know how to say no. 
You got into Columbia, the third hardest college to get into in the country, according to the survey that just came out. And you went to Middlebury College because you were afraid to say no to a roommate. That was at least 30% of it. 10% of it was it didn't serve every meal. And the flip side with Middlebury was I'd go skiing. I mean, was that a big mistake? You, you get old enough to know you can only make the choices you do. But the reason I bring it up is that Middlebury turned out to be very conservative. I mean, I grew up in the suburbs, but it had been the 60s. A great percentage of people had gone to prep school and missed the 60s completely. You were really out of touch, and the people were conservative, and the education itself was conservative. By the time I woke up to the fact that I couldn't handle it, I said, I'm going to transfer. That was the fall of my junior year. Any place where you had a transfer, you would have to go for another two years. And my goal was just to get out. So needless to say, I did not do that. But there's a really long story how I uh, – I'll tell this very quickly because I can I, – I love that you're interested. I'm very interested. Uh, but And our audience is very let, interested. Let me start from the beginning. Your when journey I, is very inspirational. When I went uh, – but not that inspirational, maybe the end. When I went to college, the only requirement – there were two requirements. You had to fulfill your major and you had to take one English course. I had a desire to be an English major and I took – this English course. And this was the one and only time this happened. I went to a small college. More people go now. When I went, it was 1,600. Now there's 2,400 people at Middlebury. I decided to call the professor and say, I'd like to do something creative instead of write on the book. He said, that sounds good. So Sunday afternoon, I sat in my dorm room in Hepburn Hall. I wrote something creative and I turned it in. I got an A. When I went to college, there was no great inflation. If I got an A, probably not anybody else in the whole class got an A. And all, but when I told, I remember the, uh, it was the book we were reading was Felix Kroll, The Confidence Man. And the paper I wrote was, um, shit, if I hadn't mentioned the name of the book, which I can't believe I remembered, I would remember the exact name of the piece I wrote. But the end was, or that's the way the, jo the joint rolls. And all the prep school kids said, you're going to fail. You're going to fail. And I got an A. And I remember getting on a pay phone because there were no mobile phones and no one had a phone in the room telling my mother I was going to become a writer. She laughed. Then I was an English major and I and everyone said, you got to take these art history courses. They're really good. Your mother doesn't seem to be the type of person to me that would laugh because she encouraged the arts and that's an artistic I thing. I mean, there are some, my mother's not going to hear this, but in a different era, my mother who's still alive uh, and presently ensconced in the San Fernando Valley temporarily, um, and it, she would have been a career woman. So I think she had her own sights. In addition, we were brought up that we were shitheads. This is something I still wrestle with today, that someone else always had the answer. Someone else could do it better. So yes, there was a mixed message of encouragement and discouragement. But I ended up taking some art courses, which were great. And I was continuing to take English courses, which were terrible. They didn't want to hear what I had to say about the book or anybody. They just wanted to know about the classical analysis and ultimately became an art history major. But when I took a creative writing class my sophomore year, and I took it from this guy who wrote sea stories unsuccessfully, uh, and he was the only creative writing teacher at Middlebury, I would write stuff and it was like springtime for Hitler when you would because when you go to the when you go to these uh, writing things, people read their stuff and other people comment. People's jaws would drop. I'd love to tell you that what I wrote was that fucking outrageous. 
It really wasn't. In addition, the style I write in, uh, let me be clear, the way I do it more than the actual style, which is not dissimilar either, is identical. I do it kind of like Jackson Pollock. I say action painting. I throw it all down. People, all, there's all this horse shit with writers say, um, oh, writing is rewriting. Eh! I mean, I reread my stuff to make sure I haven't made any mistakes. But I found time and again, if I change something, I ruin it. And there are too many people who are considered good writers. When you read it, you can see the stuff's rewritten and so many times so dense you can barely read it. First and foremost, the number one criterion of writing is it has to be readable. But going back here, the people, I would read stuff and it would say it was like springtime for Hitler and the people's reaction. Then I finally wrote something about going to an Alice Cooper concert in Boston that the teacher said was good. He said it needed a twist. This flipped me out completely. This was 1972. And I'm thinking to myself, you ever hear the new journalism, Tom Wolf, a twist? And I never wrote another fucking thing. Jump forward. Uh... So how do you make a living as you got out of college? What were you doing? Oh, God. I went to college and I moved to Los Angeles. It is very different from today. This is what's wrong with it. I have a theory I keep writing about no one picks up on, maybe because they don't want to. The reason the arts suck is because there's no middle class. If you look back, England is a different thing. I can get into that. But as I say, in America... The artists were all middle class, such that we had the Jefferson Airplane saying up against the wall, motherfucker. They would say no. Because of income inequality and the death of the middle class, anybody with any advantages no longer wants to take the risk of being a musician. Under the best of circumstances, success being a musician is incredibly long odds. Therefore, so they go into tech, they have professional careers, banking, only the lowest of the low go into music. And the people are going to hate me for this and they're going to argue this, but you can see this evidence because the people, all the acts will say, yes, you need a co-writer. No problem. We want you to do this for the corporation. No problem. We're in the 60s where he said, no. It's another thing that bothers me. Say kids today don't care about endorsements. Of course they do. When Kurt Cobain was killed, it should be, should be confusing a couple of things. When he took his own life, Andy Rooney who's already been forgotten, got on 60 Minutes and excoriated him for that. And I called up Eddie Rosenblatt, dropping another name, who was head of Geffen Records, Nirvana's uh, label. And, or in this particular case, he called me, and we're saying, this is just ridiculous what uh, um, Eddie, Andy Rooney said. And Eddie famously said to me, I'm the, only I'm the only person who keeps repeating this, but I want to give him credit. He goes, movies, when done right, are larger than life. Music, when done right, is life itself. So people believe in these artists. And when you're, it, you know, you can tell the mark of a successful artist, someone has emailed or called them and said, I was going to commit suicide, but I listened to your music and I didn't. So when these people take money from corporations and whore themselves out and are not honest, the audience knows. So that's one of the reasons why Music is not as good today. There are many other reasons. You know, that we had we lived through a peak that we, you know, in the 60s, just like the Renaissance and art, people painted and sculpted since, but there was only one Renaissance. My point is, people have been waiting for a new Dylan and a new Beatles. What they don't understand is, in the 60s and 70s, music drove the culture. Because of the switch from AM to FM, because the government said you cannot simulcast the same signal on both, FM started to broadcast all the stuff that is classic rock today, Jimi Hendrix, Cream, etc. 
If you wanted to know which way the wind blew, you listened to the radio. All the youth knew every band that was in town, et cetera. That is where you tested the limits. The only place you could be with like-minded people was to go to the concert. Today, the landscape is completely different in terms of the access, et cetera. So to expect a replication of that time. Except for the extraordinary artists. Then that's the same. Okay. We're gonna, if we're going to go down this path. No, stick with I'm gonna drop. Point. I'm going to drop another name stick here because, you know, point. my new pen pal, Elton John's emailing me about this, how, too, how the acts have no sense of history and how it is different. Adele. That's who I was going to talk okay. about. She's not that fucking good, and I'm a fan. I read your blog, and you said her show at the Greek Theater. Oh, it was the best show of the 21st century. was one of century. the greatest shows you'd ever seen in your life. So you don't say somebody's not that good if when you saw the show, it's one of the best wait, shows wait, 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 of the 21st century. There are century. two things going on here. I mean, if we want to start parsing out. A show is an experience. It is different from the record. There have been three Adele albums. The first one was good. Okay, the second one was extremely good. The new one out now is not as good as the second one. But is and why is her song outselling all her other songs? First and foremost, if you go on YouTube, which is real, the real she was selling. A, she was downloaded a million times no, 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 an no. hour. You said, "Wow." I read okay, there's stuff. not enough. Okay, there's not enough time to answer all these questions. <laughs> but let me let me go. You're being heckled by your own blog. We, we live in a disconnected society, and I did write about this. I remember, this goes back almost 10 years, I have an interest in uh, Mount Everest, and there was a TV show on the Discovery Network, which is Channel 3 in Los Angeles on Amazing. most systems, <laughs> and, it, uh, talk, and it showed about climbing Mount Everest. I could not find a single fucking person who'd seen that show. It wasn't until I used to have a radio show on KLSX, a talk show in L.A. on Sunday nights, that I talked about it. Someone called up and said, I'd seen that show. We live in a very disconnected society. There's very little commonality. And if there's any point of commonality that is annoying and is good, we all race to it so we can all talk about it. It used to be we went to the movies so we could talk about it. Today, I almost wrote about it. I'm laughing. They announce the Oscar nominations. Who the fuck cares? Who has seen all these movies? <laughs> if you look at the movies that gross large numbers, teenage boys and some youngsters went to see them. This is a circle jerk for the people involved. We get criticized, not enough white people nominate. It's an irrelevant thing. But it gets worse if we want to talk about TV shows. We haven't seen the same TV shows. But the media said Adele is a person, and this is good, such that a lot of people glommed on. But in the culture, are people talking about that record? No. So what will we know when the record goes on? Should be streaming services, which it will in the next couple of months, a year from release. We will see whether it sustains, because that shows whether people are, is listening, are listening. I go back to my original point. If you want to put a Dell's 25 next to Carol King's Tapestry, any Beatles album, a Bob Dylan album, uh, Elton John, Tumbleweed Connection, the songs are not as strong. It's just that she is so much better than everybody else. No, that's different. So you wouldn't put her first album up against Carol King's Tapestry? Not in, not in a heart, not ever. I mean, let's put it this way. It's not that there's stuff that's not good. If we talk about the golden age of television, which Brett Easton Ellis is arguing over, but I believe does exist, The Sopranos, mm -hmm. which I believe is the best television show of all time. Why did I love it? My famous favorite moment in The Sopranos is when Meadow Soprano... And I think at this point, I don't have to explain who that is. Most people have seen the show or are never going to see the show. Meadow Soprano uh, has some infraction, and they want to penalize her. 
And finally, her parents say, well, why don't you tell us what the penalty should be? And Meadow thinks about it for a while. She goes, I think you should take away my gas card for two weeks. And Tony and Carmelo look at each other and go, hmm, that sounds good, whatever. Then Meadow immediately goes up to her bedroom, gets on the phone with her friends, says, you can't believe I have my parents snowed. I have their taking away my gas card for two weeks. There was truth there. There used to be truth in music. If you go back to bringing it all back home, the Bob Dylan album, and it's all right, Ma. For them that obey authority, that they do not respect in any degree, who despise their jobs, their destinies, speak jealously of them that are free, do what they do just to have something they believe in. Compare that to any fucking track on Adele. Case closed. All right. Tell me the closest album that's come out in the past 10 years that compares to an album from your era in Middlebury College. I would, you know, I don't have a ready answer to that. I'll answer it in a different way. A hit song is a hit song. I remember driving in my car not far from my house, literally a block. I'm not going to give the address. And I heard Norrell's Barkley for the first time. Crazy. Mm-hmm. This is incredible. This is back in the era when, you know, the record was not out yet. You had to go home and steal it just to hear it. That record's as good as any record from the 60s. That's what a great record has. I'm presently into this country stuff. Country, you know, uh, Tom, Tom Petty calls it the rock and roll of the 70s. But they understand certain basics which are not part of today's regular pop culture. A, the players are unbelievable. The songs have changes. You can sing along, and the people have good voices. It's like people email me music, and don't email me shit, because at this point I don't even listen to it. But when I did used to listen to it, and the reason I don't listen to it is for a couple of reasons. One, you know, as Stevie Wonder's lawyer, Johanna Vagoda, who's recently deceased, once said to me, he goes, I'm not a railroad trader. I don't pick people up one st- station and leave them in another. But second, I've had too many bad experiences in that no matter what you say, someone utilizes that to my disadvantage online. If you say the most benign thing, well, there's something here, stay at it. They put that on the web and then they'll email you, say, tell all your followers or your subscribers to, you know, vote for me in this, this is a true story, in a radio contest. And when I tell them no, then they start writing all this heinous shit online. I don't mind if you write the heinous shit online, but if you reveal my personal address and phone number or whatever, I got a problem with that. Then I got to contact the service and have that shit taken down. So you really can't say that much. But getting to the point, someone will email you and you'll say, well, you know, the voice isn't, isn't good enough. And they say, well, it's about the lyrics, you know. Bob Dylan didn't have a good voice. And you say, Bob Dylan was the best lyricist of all time. If you were the best lyricist of all time, it would be the same. So when I listen to some of those songs, and some of them are sappy, okay, you listen to uh, – What's his name? Uh, He's been uh, marginalized by too many TV appearances, but Keith Urban has a song which he did not write called Stupid Girl. Check out the long version of the guitar playing. Un-fucking-real, okay? And and if you go to see him, it's like a rock show with three guitars and a bass. Luke Bryan, who people call Bro Country, you listen to a song called Drink a Beer or... um, there are other ones. So I would, I don't think there's a, sp- but we're not in an album era anymore. So I don't think there's a specific album that uh, does it. I mean, I hear great tracks. There's a song I'm really into. I wrote about called Broken Together by Casting Crowns. The problem at this point is when there are great tracks, how do you even find them? 
Uh, they're publicists, I guess. No, I mean, there's overwhelming. I mean, if I go on, okay, in my particular case, I have all these services. So, you know, I have Spotify, I have Deezer, I have Rhapsody. Okay, there are a million playlists every week. They send me a Discover Weekly playlist on Spotify. There's a million, you know, just in every genre alone, there are multiples, and you can't listen to that many tracks. As much as we decry the gatekeepers, ultimately, this is the point of Adele and Star Wars in that we're going to gravitate to fewer and fewer uh, artistic enterprises just because we're overwhelmed by the plethora of information. You know, famously, the guy who runs FX said there were 400-plus scripted TV shows John Landgraf. Okay. It's like, you can't wrap your head around that. It's not like you can say, oh, I'm going to spend the weekend. I've spent a week. We used to be able to do this. I've been a week, go to all the movies. I'll know what's going on in the movie business. Every Friday, you open the New York Times, they review like 20 movies. You couldn't even see them. So when it comes to music, and you can only listen to so much bad music before you uh, tune out. The other thing is, I'm going to say, when you recommend something, especially to me, your job is not to recommend what you like. Your job is to recommend what I like. People don't even get that. So we don't even have good recommenders. I'd love to tell you that you know, the people recommend shit and it's good, but do you know who I am? It's like, you know, no, you know, it's just something that, uh, that you're into. So there is great stuff. It's harder to find, but if you want to know which way the wind blows, you don't listen to a record. So what happens is that um, today, because of the death of the middle class and income inequality, people go to Middlebury College, they immediately start careers. No one I knew did that when I graduated from college. So I was a ski bum in Utah for a couple of years, starving professional freestyle skier, and before that, I went as in L.A., and I worked at a sporting goods store. It, no, it was the sporting goods store. It no longer exists. It was on Highland Avenue just south of Hollywood Boulevard called Star Sporting Goods. And if you came from the East Coast, one of the amazing things was all the stars would come in there. It was, a, it was an old-school sporting goods store which sold everything. It's like I was in the ski department, and then one day somebody says, Jack Nicholson is here. Jack Nicholson is here. I got to go talk to Jack Nicholson, who was cool. And I talked to him, and we thought he was going, literally going to uh, Oregon to film One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And we talked about going in his Mercedes 600. He was friendly. Now, living in L.A. now, I would not talk to any famous person unless I was introduced. <laughs> but you know, I was green behind the ears. Never met a famous person. And then I was working there for a month. I'd lined up a job in, at the Gold Miner's Daughter in Utah, which is still the main... Uh, hotel at the base of the mountain and I broke my leg in a freak accident and in the interim the guy who owned the sporting store offered me the store a lot of cliches in life are true where they say you know the number one thing is showing up the number two is completing things this is um I have a friend Daniel Glass runs a very the most successful independent record company called Glass Note Mumford and Sons Phoenix Churches the list goes on and 25 years ago, he was head of promotion at SBK Records, which ultimately was a division of Capital Records. And they were breaking through. They had Wilson Phillips. They had Vanilla Ice. They had Technotronic. And I did their convention in uh, Palm Springs. And Daniel, uh, I spoke. And I, Daniel stood up in front of the group and said, you need three things to look at SBK Records, to work at SBK Records. You need to have worked retail because that's where the transaction takes place where the money changes hand. You have to really want to um, work at SBK Records, and you have to have graduated from college. I went to law school, a member of the California Bar, and it's like, but everybody I know was successful in the music business dropped out of college. 
So I went up to Daniel after this and I said, you know, please explain this to me. He goes, oh, you don't learn anything in college. It just shows you can complete something. That is a huge line of demarcation. Most people today, there are plenty of people I know who are ultra successful, did not go to college. But generally speaking, if the person you went to college, they, you know, they can finish shit. Okay. And they can show up. So I'm just doing my job at the sporting goods store and the guy offers me the store. Maybe I was a decent salesman, but he saw that I showed up and had a brain. So if you got it, just start somewhere, people will recognize. There's a whole nother analog, which is the number one criterion of work is getting along. It took me a long time to learn that. It's not about being right. It's not about being good, uh, doing a good job. It's having the people like you and uh, wanting to hang around you. So I worked in that sporting goods store. Then I ultimately went to Utah and worked in Utah. Then I went to law school in uh, California. When I went to uh, law school, the bar passage rate was unbelievably low, like in the 20s, okay? And they still get the bar twice a year in July, and I believe it's February. But the results take an incredibly long time to come through. So I took the bar in July, and I'm waiting for my results. I never wanted to practice law. I got very sick in Utah out of the world's worst case of mononucleosis. My father always wanted me to be a lawyer, said he would pay for it, and he thought it would be a good background at the time. All the record companies were run by lawyers. So, but once again, talking about finishing things, if hypothetically I didn't pass the bar, it's going to take it again. So I didn't want to go get my dream job. So through a quirk of fate, I got a job with an entertainment attorney. And in the interim, I did pass the bar. He rep I was the only guy who wanted to be in the music business who was primarily working in movies. So I did that, and then I did that for the better part of a year, and I just didn't want to do it anymore. I said, I'm going to be a rock manager. Just in case you don't know, being a rock manager is a license to starve. I would dissuade anybody from being a rock manager. Unless you travel with the Eagles. No. There's a thin layer of people, like Irving Azoff, like David Geffen, okay, who are going to be successful at whatever they do. Irving Azoff represented DJs on WLS, which was the clear, clear the reason that the company was called Clear Channel because there was no other signal in America on the same frequency, but what we would call the Clear Channel station, WLS, not owned by Clear Channel in Chicago. He represented the DJs when he was in high school. He represented people on roulette records. He had a meeting with uh, Morris Levy, you know, when he was barely in college. This guy was going to be successful in anything. I mean, he's, he's, a, he's a wonderkind. He's, he's amazing. Most people are not that skilled, okay? And certainly there are successful managers. Also, when it comes to Irving, the acts don't leave Irving. Every other manager, the acts leave. Irving... Uh, is incredibly charming and is the best friend the artist ever had. In addition, I mean, my phone calls with Irving are much lengthier at this point in time, but when you would talk to him in the old days, first of all, this was when everything was run on the phone before the internet, and, you know, we'd go to 100-odd phone calls a day. He would pick up, and you'd sit in his office, he'd pick up the phone, he would insult you, okay, then make a reference showing that he remembered every conversation you ever had then he would talk business, kiss you as a friend, and go on. I saw him do it with, you know, household names. It was incredibly powerful. I mean, you're worried whether your girlfriend remembers what you said, and this guy remembers everything that you said. So, and he's the best advocate uh, for an artist and gets artists what they deserve and want. And once you're in that purview, you're not going to leave because there's no one as good as, as what Irving does as, what Irving, as Irving himself. I consider Irving to be 
like the four seasons or peninsula of a person in the music business. And you're just that kind of Well, person. at this point, he's more, more than in the music business. He's in concert promotion, and he's in, you know, uh, comedy, et cetera. But all I'm trying to say is when you reach a certain stature, your role tends to change. Your role is less about finding things in the weeds and blowing it up as opposed to people of either immense talent or stature who search you out and who need your help. And that is the point that Irving is in his life at this particular time. So I go back to work for this guy. He got a very big, the biggest independent movie studio as his uh, a client. I did some work for that. He needed my help. And then I went to work for a movie producer. This is in the 80s. Charles Band made a lot of movies. There's a lot of stories here, but just getting to the end, because of the connection, uh, we put a band called Wasp in one of our movies called Rage War. It starred, should be the guy who ended up being Bull in Night Court. You say one of our movies. That's Richard Mole. Yes. You said one of our well, movies. No, no. Charles Band was an independent movie producer back when there was no shooting on video. One thing I learned from Charles Band was how to make a movie. You could make a movie for a million dollars, okay? But a million dollars then, whatever that's worth with the 80s, whatever that's worth today, most people could not lay their hands on a million dollars. Charles Band made a lot of movies. In many cases, you would end up having to bring in financing from other people. And uh, I did not make the movies, okay? I went through, very, there were varying divisions there. He was a director. And he also produced certain movies. You let other people direct them. We had a video game division. We put out the Halloween and the uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre video games. We had an independent video cassette company called Wizard Video. He was—he literally had the first independent video cassette company. Okay, and we also had this record company. We put out a record with Freddie Moore. Freddie Moore—that's why Demi Moore is named Demi Moore. She was married to Freddie Moore. I spent you know every day with Freddie and Demi back in the 80s, which was an interesting uh, adventure. Good people. But um, so, he, you know, there were certain things he would run by me. It's like we did a movie in 3D that followed Jaws 3D into the theaters. It was bought by Universal called Metal Storm in 3D. He called me and he said, you know, what genre has been underexploited that we can use in music that has a, a, movie, a movie that would have a lot of uh, uh, cachet? And I said metal. At the time, it was supposed to have all metal music. It did not, but that was why it was called Metal Storm. He called me one night and he said, for those of you who grew up in Los Angeles, there used to be the LA Times before it became a pamphlet. Uh, they had a tabloid section every Sunday, the calendar section. It was the Bible of arts in Los Angeles. And there was an article about this band that threw meat into the audience. And Charlie called me up and he said, can you track down this band? I'd like to put them in a movie. And Chris Morris wrote the article. I had a connection to Chris Morris. He gave me the guy, Blackie Lawless's phone number. I called Blackie. And we ultimately made a deal for him to be in the movie, which we shot that hit their segment at the Troubadour. Now, in this particular case, when you make a movie, it's a lot of hurry up and wait. So I became tight with Blackie. And he said at the time the big club owned by Jim Rissmiller, was in the Reseda called the Country Club. It held about 1,100 people. And Blackie says, I sell out the Country Club. I sell out the Country Club. So one night I went. He did not sell it out, but he sold like 900 tickets, which is, even to this date, is a phenomenal statistic. 
So I maintained a relationship with Blackie. And then Blackie said he was close friends with the manager of Iron Maiden. You live in L.A., you know, that could, you know, yeah, right. But one day he called me up and he said, can the manager of Iron Maiden come meet you? This is another thing about getting older. I thought the manager of Iron Maiden wanted to meet me. He didn't want to meet me. What the fuck did he want to have to do with me? I had three-quarter-inch videotape of 35-millimeter film of an unsigned band. At this late date, probably most people have no idea what that is. That's unheard of. No one would shoot in 35-millimeter. That's a real movie, okay? And in this particular case, the work copies were always three-quarter-inch videotape. There were two in existence. And in our office on Fairfax, they, at that time I was number two in the operation. They could not leave the building. They just couldn't. They were the only two that existed. And it slowly dawned on me, as I'm busy pontificating about rock and roll, that the manager of Iron Maiden's, whose name to this day, he's still the manager of Iron Maiden, Rod Smallwood, he just wanted to get his hands on one of those videotapes. When he finally brought that up, he said, I can't leave the office. Finally, I said, listen, okay, you can take the video. It just has to come back today. It just has to. So no one will know what's gone, whatever, blah, blah, blah. He says it will. He went to Capitol Records because Iron Maiden was the biggest international act on Capitol Records. Rod went to um, Capitol Records, made a deal for 500 grand cash. And then Blackie came back to my office. The tape did come back. And Blackie said, are you really a lawyer? I said, yeah. And he's going on and on, you know. So you know, he says, I really need to know. So I said, I got a bar card. So I went to bar, have a bar card. He goes, I need to represent you in a deal with uh, Iron Maiden's manager, management contract. I said, sure. In the process, they were EQing the record. At the time, metal records were mastered primarily by George Marino at uh, Sterling Sound in New York City. But I had a relationship with this guy, still the number one guy in L.A., Stephen Markison, at the time working at Precision Lacquer, because we had done Freddie Moore's band's album there, and there was a technical screw-up, such that I became friends with the two guys who ran Precision Lacquer. At the time, if you wanted to book mastering, you had to book weeks in advance. The tape came back from George Marino. It wasn't right. So let me call him a favor. Well, Stephen, who's a friend to this day, I said, can you DQ this record? And he says, yeah, I can do it tonight. So we met after hours. And at the time, you'd have to cut refs, which would take a long time. And so the refs are cut. The band leaves to go to the Rainbow, which is what they did every night. I said, I will bring the refs. So I end up bringing the refs to the Rainbow. And it's at midnight. I give the cassette to Rod Smallwood, who gets all pissed off. What are you doing with the ref? Blah, 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 blah. And explain what I've done here. That I, you know, there was a problem, as he knew, with uh, Sterling Sound. And I called in a favor, and he said, you shouldn't be a lawyer. You should be a manager. And when you, when my partner comes to town, he has sort of a business partner to this day, Andy Taylor, who's not involved in the creative end of Iron Maiden, but the business end. He goes, when he comes to town, we're going to make a deal. Disappeared for three months, came back. We did make a deal. They owned a house above the rainbow that Peter Sellers had purchased but died before he ever moved into. And they moved me in there. They put a ton of money in the bank account. And I ultimately got fired from that job, okay? And that threw me for such a loop that it tainted the whole experience 
because at the time, I don't know what it is today. I think it's even shorter. I think it may be 75 days. But at the time, you could only be in the U.S. for 90 days and not pay taxes. So Rod and his partner could never be in the United States. Such that I had an unbelievable amount of power. I am not saying that I didn't like this or that I'm complaining. I was working around the clock, as most people in the music business still are want to do. Such that we had a lot of cash because our deals were rich. I will tell you one story because it's illustrative. In that um, we were making a video. We had a, two videos guaranteed on the first album with Wasp. First one was budgeted at 45 grand. I was 18 in of our own money. We were contractually owed the 45 grand. I contacted Capital. They said they weren't going to pay us. This was, you know, maybe Friday. So they were not going to pay us the Monday, Monday, or Tuesday because they only wrote checks on Thursday. <laughs> so I called up Rod because you had a call then who was in the Bahamas because he couldn't be in the United States because he didn't want to pay tax. And I say, hey, you know, what should I do about this? He goes, this is why I hired you, Bob. You take care of it. So I call Capital Rec and say, yeah. You know, either you give us the rest of the money or I bill you for the 18 grand that we're in. Needless to say, they gave the money. Rod, Andy called me up because you got to go meet with this guy, Roberto de Medina. You know, you're going to meet with uh, somebody from uh, the guy who does, what was it, Hor Stanley Korshak, who's the lawyer for uh, Frank Sinatra. You got to go meet what is now the W Hotel in Westwood. It used to be called something else. Now, they want to do some rock festival in Rio, whatever. I go for a meeting. They want to book Iron Maiden for a rock festival in Rio. Ultimately, this happened. It was the first rock in Rio, et cetera. Nobody there was music business savvy. Not only did I have to negotiate the deal, I had to write the contract, which, and I'd made it, I told them specifically I wasn't going to practice law when I was working for Sanctuary Music. To tell the specific story of why I, lo I lost my job, the record, Blackie wanted to produce the record himself. Capitol Records would not let him. He hooked him up with this guy, Mike Varney, who at the time lived in Sebastopol, which is north of San Francisco, and was finding hot guitarists. He had a label called Shrapnel, found uh, Ron Keel, and a few other people. The record came back when it was finished. It was mixed wrong. A... I had to stand up. I told Blackie, there's a problem with the mix. He says, go to John Carter. I will only remix it if John Carter says to remix it. Okay. John Carter was an A&R guy who ultimately became famous. He engineered Tina Turner's comeback. He also, he's now deceased. He also wrote the lyrics for Incense and Peppermints. So I went for, to Carter. Who was the band that sang that? Strawberry Alarm Clock. That's right. So I went to Carter's office. I played him the tape. Tape is over, and he looked at me in the eye and goes, I passed on this band three times. They were signed above me. Do whatever you want. What? Now I'm freaking out. Don't forget, they're giving me, Rod and Andy are giving me total control. I'm going back to the office, not knowing what to do. All of a sudden, and I say the office was in the house above the rainbow, uh, Blackie shows up. Everybody in this band was very tall. Blackie's in excess of six feet with a bag of Mrs. Field's cookies. He knew I liked that. And he said, I'm going to remix the record. He had uh, um, played it for a number of people. I ultimately got Dwayne Barron, who at the time was riding a high. He had uh, mixed Quiet Riot's 
album, the one that was so huge with Come On, Feel the Noise. He made the record listenable, okay? Now, in this particular case, musicians have a plan. Don't forget, music drove the culture. It's a very different era. And Blackie wanted one track to be the single. MTV at the time changed policy. These used to happen anywhere between every six months, every two years. We're going to play this and not this. They say, we're going to stop playing metal. We're going to play more regular rock. There was another track on the album called, uh, the original track was I Want to Be Somebody. The other one, I'd have to think about it to remember the title. And Dwayne had made it a great success. So I said, this should be the single. Blackie argued with me. And then Rod called me up and he goes, what difference does it make what, which track will be the single? It's like, who cares if the album sells 100,000 or 500,000? It's a first album, which was not the way I viewed it. And then the partner flew in from Europe to fire me, even though I was supposed to go to England in a matter of days, because, hey, I wasn't just getting along. In retrospect, there were a couple of things. I had too much history with Blackie. I'd been a friend, then I'd been the lawyer, then I was the manager. So whatever the relationship there was difficult. Such that, um, was I competent at the job? Yes. I would never be doing what I'm doing if I didn't get fired. But it, I did not see it coming because I was doing the job of two people plus doing the legal work. And literally, they had hired two people to replace me and to farm out the legal work, showing that anybody can be replaced. And they went through ups and downs after me. A lot of people know about Sanctuary Music. This is long after me. And, you know, anybody who's successful has been fired. But to, to put the last little loop on it, because the, I know you're going to ask this question, we had enough money in our budget such that we insisted on hiring independent PR people. And we did. And they would have these young college graduates working for them, writing the bios, which would be unreadable. And I was rewriting them, which caused a little bit of static, okay? So then I got fired, and I worked on a couple of movies because I'd hired people, um, and I had made a lot of money I couldn't spend because I was working around the clock. And one night, there was a hamburger chain in the 80s called Flaky Jake's, and it was the intersection of Sepulveda and Pico, and I was there reading Billboard. Billboard's been through ups and downs. At the time, it was in kind of a down. Then Timothy White took it up, and then it went down again, whatever. And I'm reading, I go, this is terrible. I could do a better job than this. And I went home, and I woke up my girlfriend. I had sort of the idea. She said, you should do this. Then I was uptight about it. I thought about it for two weeks, and then I said that I would. I had a credit card for being a lawyer. I rang up $5,000 worth of um, computer equipment, and I started the newsletter. But you bet on yourself. No. Yes, Bob. No, no, that was no, the no. First let time me let me let me let me be clear. I was up against a wall. I was broke. I needed to do something. This is an interesting thing I think about. People like Irving, he's a great cogitator and makes things happen. Forget about all the people who don't make things happen. People who are broke do not take five thousand dollars and invest in themselves. Unless I'm glad, that, I'm glad that you're themselves. putting all this positive spin, and I enjoy it. Bob, I'm not you, to you, you took a check your whole life from other people, and one day later on in your life, you said, "Fuck it, I'm not taking a check anymore. I'm going to make my own way." Well, there was a very long struggle, and then I, I uh, ended up in a lot of debt. My ex-wife left. 
Then I completely broke, and then I was leave, living literally on nothing for years. And just to go forward, what really, um, what really changed my life was that uh, I had a free subscription to AOL from Warner Brothers Records before anybody knew what AOL was. I didn't use it much. I had a modem on my computer. But then I was writing for this Tower Records magazine called Pulse, and they printed my address, which I can't believe in. I started getting letters, and people wanted to communicate via email. So then I got back on, and I knew everything about uh, the Internet. For, I lost five years of my life to the Internet, the late from 1995 to 2000. In the year 2000, I go to this conference in Aspen every year about the touring business. And for the first time ever, after the 1999 conference, the contact sheet had email addresses. So I wrote something to them, and the response was instant and large. So previously, the email, the newsletter had been in print every two weeks. Then, because I had some friends at uh, Random House, I had the book, The Operator, about David Geffen, a weekend before anybody else. And I wrote about it. I sent it to my Aspen people. Reaction was great. And then I had a directory uh, from the Album Network, which we used to be an old trade publication, that had email addresses for, and it covered some of my subscribers. I sent it to them, and then all of a sudden the virality was incredible. People And I would say, well, how did you find out about this? And they said, well, I got it from so-and-so, and so-and-so wasn't a subscriber. So I ultimately let the paid, subs- I didn't charge anymore, let the paid subscriptions go. But in addition, this was the height of Napster. I am a lawyer. I can understand the law behind Napster. I was an expert on that. So I moved my operation online. into. It was so overwhelming because a lot of things people think are de rigueur. I was on the bleeding edge of like internet hate. You would go tell people they wouldn't know what you're talking about. So it was hard just to cope with the feedback. In 2005, I automated my list and so that anybody could sign up and sign off. On some level, that's late, but if I'd done it earlier, I don't know if I could have coped with the feedback. Every day I get emails saying I'm God and then and from other, somebody else saying that I'm shithead. And to cope with that is quite the roller coaster. But hitting the high points, that's how I got from there to here. That's amazing. So now I want you to tell our audience your opinion about Apple Music and Jimmy Iovine's quest to move that okay. forward. Okay, streaming is the future. I don't want to waste any time with people saying that it's not. We live in an on-demand culture. That is what streaming is. For all the hoopla about vinyl, it is a blip on the radar screen. In tech, there is a first-mover advantage, but only if you keep pushing the bleeding edge. The classic example of this is with MySpace. MySpace was the first. Friendster was the first, but MySpace was the first uh, well-known social network. MySpace collapsed for a few reasons. The number one reason it collapsed was because of interface. They allowed everybody to design their own page, such that it crashed computers. Uh, Facebook, in addition to allowing certain privacy controls that MySpace did not, had a much better interface. No one has been able to compete with Facebook. Now, there are companies that do something slightly different, i.e. Snapchat, Twitter. They ultimately, Facebook bought Instagram. But what Facebook does... There is no true competitor. What we have learned in the internet sphere, and it's fascinating to me, um, because I've been yelling about this, and Olm Malik, he wrote something for The New Yorker 10 days ago about this, and he he was emailing me about this, dropping another name, 
And what he was talking about, which is true, well, there's one winner online. But the music business still reeling from the fact that they gave their videos essentially for free to MTV, and then MTV became so valuable, they are always worried about being hoodwinked. Ironically, Viacom's worth nothing today. That's an overstatement. And these records from the past are still worth something. But a lot of money, you know, went by the wayside into the pockets of Viacom, which owned MTV and still does. So what do we know? There will be one winner in the streaming space. We want to go where all our friends are. If you, even, if you go back in tech to Betamax versus VHS, all the techies agree that Betamax is better than VHS, but VHS ended up being what everybody wanted. So we know, despite the record industry wanting to play suppliers off each other, there will be one salute, one winner. One will get 60-plus percent of the market share. Just like Amazon was selling MP3s, could never really compete with iTunes. What do we know about Spotify? First, mover advantage. Secondly, they're constantly improving the product. They are not perfect. I don't want to talk about the flaws and the splits. That's the ignorant leading the blind. They pay 70% to the rights holders, and they are not about stealing from and not really paying 70%. It's tech. There is transparency. Who they pay to, whether they have transparency, something else. There were other companies. There was Rhapsody. There was a company called Napster that had streaming services, but they did not have a freemium component. Spotify from the first said one of their goals was to eradicate piracy. Why would you steal it if you can access it instantly? But the music business is greedy. In addition, the acts are uninformed. There's no one who knows less about what's going on in business than the talent itself. So first, Apple Music starts with a uh, hand behind its back because it does not as a three-month free tier, but not an ongoing free tier. I know the people involved, Ian Rogers, who presently does not works for LMVH, does not work for Apple Music anymore. He was the spearhead of Beats Music, which morphed into Apple Music. And when they launched, I said, it's not going to work, even though you have telecom partners, which Spotify did too, because people would rather steal. So Apple is hamstrung by the fact that it doesn't have an ongoing freemium tier. They didn't think they needed one, but the labels weren't about to give them one. You need freemium to eradicate piracy. Eventually, everyone will pay. The example I use, I was talking about an old girlfriend. I had a dial phone. When I moved in with her, she had a push-button phone. You had to pay $3 extra for the push-button phone. I wouldn't pay for that. When we broke up, I paid the $3. It was interminable. <laughs> Once you experience on-demand streaming, you will ultimately pay for it. That will not happen today, but that will happen eventually. So Apple is hamstrung, A, by the fact that it does not have an ongoing freemium tier. Secondly, it didn't read Clayton Christensen's book, which is The Innovator's Dilemma. You, you start a new company which cannibalizes the old. This speaks to interface issues. Apple Music tries to do too much. Play your old MP3s, where it changed all the fucking artwork after I spent hours trying to get my artwork right, as well as stream. In addition, the interface is hard to understand. They'd already failed once before in a social network. I haven't heard anybody mention the name, the word connect, which is their new social network in months, okay? And it is hard to navigate. So you have Steve Jobs, who famously said, he didn't say it, but to keep it simple, stupid, he would put out a um, 
remote, which essentially had one button. And there's so many buttons on Apple Music. In addition, the instant experience is a bad one that they've improved it a little bit such that their advantage of being Apple has been squandered. Microsoft started the MSN network to compete with AOL. Everyone thought they were going to kill AOL. They didn't. AOL imploded for different reasons, ultimately cable companies supplying broadband. So Apple Music will have some traction. But the leader to watch is Spotify. And, and I guarantee you, one company will end up with 60% of the market share. People email me Spotify links. You can't even email an Apple Music link, and no one has ever tried uh, to send one to me. They may have that feature now, but no one's reaching out. The Adele thing is pure, unadulterated greed. It is an outlier that has nothing to do with anything else. The number one issue in art today is obscurity. It's not about getting paid. So many things happen so fast. Everyone is inundated with messages. The odds of your message getting traction are incredibly low. Adele was anointed the superstar of music, such that when she put out a new, new uh, album, the press was primed and the public was primed. The Wall Street Journal did a fascinating article on this that probably is no longer behind a paywall online. The main demo buying all those Adele records is single women over the age of 30. They can't listen to it for free like everybody else? No, 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 no. It is a different culture where the CD is available, they're not early adopters, and they want to own something. Taylor Swift? We'll get to Taylor Swift next. Such that we have these incredible sales figures, no one has ever been able to duplicate that. And it's ultimately meaningless because you won't even be... It's like Warner Brothers sent me a, sent me a CD uh, two days ago. Where the fuck am I supposed to play it? I have an iMac that doesn't have a 5K that doesn't have a drive. I can, yeah, I can fire up the big stereo, but you know, I'm not ultimately going to do that. So it is ultimately meaningless. Now, when it comes to Taylor Swift, this is your other point. She can rail about not wanting to give her music away for free. It's free on YouTube all fucking day long, That's what I'm as saying. is Adele. So talking out of both ends of her mouth. Yeah, shut down, shut down your YouTube channel, then come back to me. Never going to happen. Fascinating. Okay, tell me when you first noticed the death of the music business, the record companies. If you talk about recorded music, which is only one piece of the entertainment pie, the major labels are arguably more successful than they've been in 15 years because they are the only ones with pipelines to media exploitation, i.e. radio, print. If you try to do it alone, you get lost in the morass of information. Now, if you want to talk about the overall revenue and recorded music, yes. anyone could... I was under the disillusion of the fact that the record companies wanted to establish the illegal, the copyright infringement of Napster so that they could license it. They established the copyright infringement uh, liability of Napster and then shut it down. That was incredibly stupid. So that is when you knew they were heading in the wrong direction. The first time you were exposed to rap music, did you think that it was something that would become as big as it has? No, I mean, depending what you call the first rap record, you know, if you go back to, you know, Sugar Bl Hill Gang Blondie, or? whatever. I'll, I'll go to The Message, which okay. they played on K-Rock. It was a great track you knew. 
the two things. One, you knew when they established Yo MTV Raps on MTV, which was 91 or 90. Ed whatever. Lover and Dr. Dre. Exactly. Yeah. And you, a, you couldn't believe they had a guy named Dr. Dre when there already was a Dr. Dre. And you thought it was long in the tooth and then it became successful. You said, hey. And then everybody who hated rap, you could see that it wasn't dying that fast. And then I very famously called the death of Geffen Records. It was in 1997 because they didn't have any rap groups. Okay. So in the mid-90s, that's when you realize this is more than a phenomenon. The interesting thing at this late date, because rap has morphed in, first rap used to have samples. Now, generally speaking, people don't want to pay for the samples, okay? And rap used to be the sound of the streets. We had the, uh, the riots here in 1992. And we realized everything Ice-T was saying was true, okay? But then it became about the yachts and the lifestyle, et cetera, and we thought it was long on the tooth. The most interesting thing at this point in time is on streaming services, which are the future, hip-hop has a larger share of the market than rap. Having said that, the interesting thing is the most successful acts in the business, and we'll quantify that primarily by touring revenue, are country artists. Only country artists can sell out stadiums. Taylor Swift was a country artist. Kenny Chesney, Luke Bryan, Jason Aldean. If you look at all the other pop artists, they can't sell 50,000 tickets by so themselves. So you too can't sell out a stadium? You too. I mean, you're talking a couple of things here, and I want to parse it, but people understand everything. U2 is what we call a heritage act. They don't have recent hits, okay? The other acts I'm talking about have hits right now. But having said that, U2 went on a stadium tour all over the world made a lot of money. I want to stop here because I want to bring this up because it's very important. U2's uh, 360 tour took three years. It's supposed to be two and a half, but Bono needed a back uh, operation. I know the people who paid them. At the end of the three years, they each made a little less than $50 million. That's a good payday by anybody's standards. That's $20 million a year. What do we know? There are bankers who make 20 plus million a year for 20 years straight. There are techies with many more zeros on that. This was the most successful act in the music business, okay? I.e., Bono gets involved with Roger McNamee, who was a VC in Elevation Partners. They make some big money, which they ultimately did selling a few companies. And the best and the brightest don't want to go into music. So... They took all the money out of the marketplace. You two couldn't go on an endless stadium tour. And when they came back, in the tour that they're on, the visuals, the screen is unbelievable. It does not go clean in every market. They're doing very good business, okay? But they're playing arenas, twelve to 20,000 seats. There are markets where there are tickets available. Not thousands, but tickets available. They can't go back and make that kind of money. But by the same token, they don't have a current hit right now. Got it. All right. Let's play a little game here. Genius, not genius. Okay. Ready? Bob Marley. Genius. Jerry Lee Lewis. Subgenius. <laughs> There's one or the other. Listen, what do we know about Jerry Lee Lewis? They <laughs> did an expose in Rolling Stone in the 70s how he killed multiple wives. 
And everyone seems to have forgotten that. It's not something I forgot. What, you can't be a genius and kill people? I don't think he's a genius. I, I think he's a very talented man. Just Diana Ross. Definitely not a genius. Patty Smith. Definitely not a genius. And Nick, I get, you know, if this if I wrote that in my newsletter, there'd be people signing off. You know, they've got a lot of uh, mediocre action to the uh, uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame at this point. Patty Smith, I got nothing negative to say about her. Not that fucking talented. The only hit she ever fucking had was, you know, Because the Night was written by Bruce Springsteen. I bought the albums. I like that song, Kimberly, off the first album, but way the fuck overrated as a musician. Jim Morrison. A poet. I'll, I'll go with genius. I mean, he was part of a band. He was not the only element that made that band successful. Dr. Dre. Genius. The Beatles of hip-hop. Carlos Santana. Not a genius. Good, very good guitar player. Got it. Eric Clapton. I would say the same thing. Not a genius. Very good guitar player. Very skilled as a lot of things, but it's different from seeing to be channel the gods. Frank Zappa. Genius. This is social commentary alone. Never mind his uh, musical talent. James Taylor. That's it. I'm a huge James Taylor fan. And you have to look that he's... I'm going to go. I'll, I'll, I'll say he crosses line into genius. Tupac Shakur. I say he crosses the line into genius, too. Jimi Hendrix. Genius. I don't like this genius, non-genius, but I'll play. <laughs> Your friend, Sir Elton John. Elton's fantastic genius. But you see, genius, when I think of genius, I think of someone who seems to be born an outlier. Someone seems to be born, hey, that's Gladwell's term, but I don't mean it in terms of Gladwell's 10,000 hours. Someone who seems to be born out the system, outside the system, going his own way, and seems to have got something innate as opposed to something developed. So there are people like that, and some of them may not have even done, you know, may have had many hit records, where there are these other people who are giants equal to them, but you know, it's something like Albert Einstein. He can see something the other people can't see. Whereas Bob Dylan's main skill is to be able to capture something, which is a different skill. Frank Sinatra. I'm not a Frank Sinatra fan. So not a genius. Definitely not. Got it. Kurt Cobain. We would like to have seen him, you know, age and see what, as, uh, what's his name? Joe Walsh said, the real challenge is staying alive. I'll go with genius on Kurt Cobain. Michael Jackson. Not genius. Definitely not. Definitely. He didn't write the fucking songs. Got it. I mean, he gets some credit, but not really. That, those were great records, but not genius. Quincy Jones is a genius, but yeah. not Michael Jackson. Uh, and I'm going to mention three artists that I believe are geniuses. Okay, they're going to set me up. Okay. All right. Prince. Genius, absolutely. Eminem. You know, it's funny because someone like Prince, he writes the words, he does the music, where Eminem does his one thing. Eminem is genius for, if for no other reason, he pushed the envelope in what was culturally acceptable, and he ended up being right. I got to give him credit for that. Jimmy Page. Jimmy Page, you have to give him genius. People focus on Jimmy Page in terms of his guitar playing. There was a concert in 1983 called the Arms Concert. That was for Ronnie Lane, who was in the faces. He had MS. 
And the three legendary guitarists were there, Eric Clapton, Jimmy Page, and Jeff Beck. They were not playing together, they were playing separately. Beck blew everybody off the stage. Beck, I believe, is better than Hendrix. Best rock. If you talk to Beck, I'll drop it. He says he misses notes. I've never seen them. Page has incredible talent as an arranger, producer, sound. That's Even though he's a great guitar player, that's what makes it genius. By the same token, there was an alchemy with the four that no one's been able to replicate independently. So I would rather say Led Zeppelin is genius than Page being genius. Got it. Now, tell me three artists that have come out or bands that have come out in the last five or so, ten years, that if you're a visionary and you look forward to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, these people will be first ballot inductees. Name three. You got a lot of shit going on there. One is a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is used to let anybody in at this point in time. Uh, I think you know where I'm going. I know exactly where you're going. Uh, I don't have three. Uh, they're going to, you know, she wrote a song about me, but, you know, Taylor Swift's going to get in, as she should for those first two albums. Is she going? I think she's taking a left turn. I think the number one, the number one person who belongs in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame working today is Max Martin, and I can't think of anybody who deserved it other than him. That's the only person. Yes. Fascinating. Is he the only genius working in the last five to ten years that's broken he's, through? He's not the only genius, but Max Martin, a in terms of the ten thousand hours. Studied in music school in Sweden. First, he was a heavy metal musician. Not only has he have had success for almost 20 years, he's operated in different genres. He's got a song on the Adele record. He did the Backstreet Boys record. Some of those tracks are unbelievable. He did Since You've Been Gone. He can work in many genres. And he knows what's a hit. It's like the Beatles. It's like... How were all those songs so good? I give Max Martin, even though, you know, you know, the lyrics may not be great, but he's got something. In addition, you know, a somewhat humble, regular guy. Got it. Well, I think I want to share this because I turn you on to so many different artists and I send your stuff out to everybody I know in my industry. And there's one thing that you recently wrote that I loved and I hope you don't mind me embarrassing you, but I'm going to read okay, it to yeah, you. Okay, well, lay it on me. It's very strange hearing my stuff read to me, but go for it. This one was simply, I believe, titled The Artist. Okay. Okay. And I'm going to tell you some things that he wrote and think of the word The Artist coming before it. The Artist never worries about money, but never makes it paramount. Is jealous of others' success, but puts his head down and keeps working. Knows when he strikes a chord, knows when he gets it right. Looks for this resonance, this inner light. When you've achieved it, you'll get an inner smile. An artist knows a career is a journey, and you learn through experience. An artist takes risks. He lives in the world of discomfort. He challenges himself. He knows that love is the answer, but is sometimes poisoned by hate. The artist wants a wide audience more than he wants riches. He knows not to listen to anybody but himself. Stories in the press are inaccurate, and everyone's an individual on his own journey. An artist plays to his strengths, not to his weaknesses. Focuses on what he does right, not what he does wrong. Is rarely good at anything else. An artist dies inside when he's not creating. 
questions himself constantly. Thinking of giving up is delusional. Knows he needs suits, but is reluctant to listen to them on creative career matters. An artist feels more deeply than the average person. He gets in touch with his inner tuning fork, such that others may resonate. He's afraid of overloading his audience, but desires to overload them. This is an unending conundrum. An artist is willing to destroy what he's created in order to move forward. He knows that there are charts and awards, but it's really not a competition. An artist knows beauty. He's a communicator, is riddled with feelings of inadequacy. When an artist boasts, he is usually covering up insecurity. An artist needs approval. He wants fame and fortune, but wouldn't know how to live with either if he got them. An artist feels pain. He knows that the medium may be the message, but the medium keeps changing. An artist is busy being born. Otherwise, he's dying. There's a huge backstory to this, and I've been doing this a long time. And I will tell you, I won't say that no one is ever, no, I will say no one's ever interested in the backstory. And I am very interested in my, and the audience here is very No, interested. believe me, they're not, but I'm going to tell the backstory. <laughs> because, you know, Bob Dylan famously would not explain his lyrics. And then there are some famous lyrics that people looking for traction in their later years explain like uh, never going back to my old school. The song My Old School Steely Dan, they tell the story of what went on when they went to Bard College. So I've learned, not because of you know career image manipulation issues, but people have an experience when they read it and the backstory does not add. But I will tell the story in this particular case. That was written last night. David Bowie died. I had had a stressful day. I was planning to sit down with the Sunday newspapers and I was checking my Twitter feed, and that's how I discovered he died at probably 10.30 at night on Sunday night in Los Angeles. Genius. Absolutely. So I felt that I had to write about it, and I was having a computer problem such that I stopped. And then this, this is not a – that, at that point, I was having a computer problem on my end. Then I ended up having a problem on the server end, and this was a big – deal and it took a few days to get all this stuff settled. This stuff does not happen often, but every once in a while that's the world we live in. So then he had been dead a couple of days and I felt that uh and I was disconnected because of all the issues that I'd had, I wrote about it. And I was kind of stunned that the reaction to the quality of what I'd written was very high and because everyone was ultimately writing about him. And I also got in touch with the fact that this was more stressful and painful for me personally than I had realized. I had a lot of other shit going on in my life that could cause stress and pain. But over, by, by the, over the course of three and a half days, four days, those other things were worked out. Some car issues, et cetera. Stuff all comes at once. And then I also noticed I did not want to read any I – mean, I was – I. I've seen Bowie multiple times, very familiar with his material, big fan, and was there from the beginning in America. And I didn't want to read, at first I felt I didn't want to read anything because I already knew what they were going to write about. And then ultimately I realized it was too painful. And then I was supposed to go see Elton John at the Wiltern last night. There were a lot of logistical issues, and at the last minute I decided not to go. I said, I'm going to focus on what I am doing. And then I am home, and I'm not accomplishing anything, which feels weird. 
So then I decide I'm going to write something. I don't think it's going to be, I thought it was only going to be partially about Bowie and it being enough about Bowie. I said, forget the other stuff and I hit send. And the next, that helped my mood a little bit. And then I was going to go out hiking. I was doing my back exercises. I go hiking at night and uh, for exercise and mental cleanse purposes. As I said, not everybody's, I've already lost most of the audience. Their eyes were in the back of their heads because they haven't even gotten back to the inspiration. Not true, Bob. But uh, what happens is I'm doing my back exercises and I, I'm so disconnected from work. Back exercise in this case is going to take 40 minutes. Um, I start getting inspired again. It is also not early. It is uh, 10 o'clock at night. And... I realize I still have something to say about this David Bowie thing. And then I say, can I wrote, write about Bowie one more time? And because my numbness was starting to erode, I was starting to ultimately descend into the world where I could investigate what people were saying about his death, whatever. You know, just the fact that he kept doing what he wanted to do my brain flashed, segueing. And this is so different from how they do it today. Keith Richards famously says, the riff for satisfaction came to him in the middle of the night. He woke up, he had a recorder right there, and he um, sang into the recorder, and that's a riff for satisfaction. One, you know when you're hot. B, you can feel the spark. C, capture the spark. Going left field for a minute. That's not how it's done in the entertainment business. This was one of the great things about music in the old days. It was done quickly on the spark, whereas movies were collaborative efforts. Now music, popular music collaborative and all the soul has been pulled out of it. So I say to myself, I don't want to start working at 10 o'clock at night. But I, I did this once before and it was only a couple of weeks before I said, okay, I'm feeling something. Let me try to nail it right now. Okay. So I wrote all that I would say it was under 10 minutes. Maybe it was 12 minutes, okay? And then I wasn't absolutely sure about it, and the server was tied up sending what I was doing previously. And then ultimately I hit send. That is the complete story of the inspiration. Wow. All right. Um, little six degrees of separation, if you don't mind. Okay, let's go. Bob's head's about to explode. I'm going to mention a name of somebody. Okay, go for it. And then you just, you could say one word, you could say a sentence, whatever comes to mind. Okay. All right. Paul McCartney. Genius. I'll tell you my favorite Paul McCartney story. He was being feeded at the um, Music Cares Dinner. It's the Friday before the Grammys where they honor an artist for charity and a lot of other people do their numbers. The host, and I can't fucking believe I'm going to forget his name. You're going to remember immediately. Who's the comedian? Who's the transvestite from England? Oh, Eddie Izzard. Eddie Izzard. Eddie Izzard is the host. Genius, by okay. the way. I happen, I'm a friend, friends with uh, Paul McCartney's manager. I'm talking about after the show. He goes, why don't you come backstage? In this particular case, it's, it's in a giant warehouse type place in the convention center downtown. So behind... Backstage is an area that's curtained off, and it's pretty large. Eddie Izzard's there at a table. I go up and tell him how great he was. He wants to talk. So I'm talking to Eddie Izzard. No one, okay, you want to talk, talk for like 15 minutes. And then I talk to a couple of other people I know back there. 
And then it comes time to go. Okay. And shit, I'm not gonna remember one little element of the story. Probably not enough time for me to recall in my brain. But then Paul McCartney comes strolling out from the real inner sanctum with Nancy. At this point, there's maybe six, seven people there. And he is saying goodbye to the manager, and I'm not, I'm right there. And I compliment him on a song. And I was talking about, I was talking about a performance, and I was saying how I love this song. And it was a live version. It was a hit. And I said it was on the backside of this single. And he looked at me and he goes, no, it was the backside of the other single. He knew it <laughs> just like that. He wasn't putting me down, but it was like he was, it was 1230 at night. He knew what was going on all the time. So it was great. The other thing about it is, I mean, now he's a legend, but those mid seventies records, which were successful, he doesn't get enough credit. First of all, if you go back and listen to McCartney, the first solo album, just haunting and brilliant, and that would be something, Teddy Boy, whatever. But if you listen to not only Band on the Run, but the album after that, Venus and Mars, Letting Go, I get tingles just thinking about it. He did not get enough credit for how great those records were. Mick Jagger. Well, I love that he reads my stuff. I don't know if he reads everything, but I know. Um, listen, a legend. I went to he they did a show to announce their stadium tour last summer and it was in uh, the Fonda in Hollywood and there's what 2,000 people there and they were doing amongst other things sticky fingers from beginning to end in between numbers the audience fucking talked it's Mick fucking Jagger I'd been to see uh, Greg Allman at the Roxy a few weeks before that and they talked in between his songs but this is and he handled it brilliantly a real pro listen those Stones records were unbelievable. Stevie Wonder. I was just thinking about him last night. His streak is only eclipsed by the Beatles. We can talk about where it starts and where it ends. I would basically say, you know, um, talking book, inner visions, fulfilling this first finale. But now I put that, those as the three members of the streak. You can go to the one before, Music on my, of My Mind. You go to the one after, which I believe is overrated, but certainly excellent. Songs the Key of Life. Those albums are as good as it gets from a blind guy who had the nerves cut. So, you know, if you know Stevie Wonder, he has all these erratic hours because they, they were harvesting things. They didn't know that that helped you regulate your time from blind people. They don't do it anymore. Unbelievable genius. The fact that he can't equal it at this point. He reached the pinnacle. He, and when he was 24 years old. Bruce Springsteen. I'm a huge Springsteen fan, but what I hate about Springsteen is not Springsteen, but his fans. Fans are, you know, he is not God. He is not on the level of Beatles. When he was speaking of his experiences, it was unbelievable. I liked it more when he portrayed himself as blue collar as opposed to an educated guy. There's a lot there, but the fans make me puke. Got it. Madonna. The problem is, if you say anything negative about Madonna, she will immediately label you as sexist and ageist. But if you sit there and listen to the Immaculate Collection from beginning to end, it's astoundingly good. Got it. Public Enemy. Trend-setting group, certainly the genesis of Dr. Dre. Um, great. 
Steven Tyler. Steven Tyler is one of the few rock stars and the only one who comes to mind who lives up to the legend. Most people you meet your heroes, you are sorely disappointed. And I remember the first time meeting Joni Mitchell. She is intense. She's not 100% healthy, not as ill as they say she is in the press, but she's a difficult woman and there's no artist better than, than Joni Mitchell. Steven Tyler, I remember being on the phone with them. You know, he called me before I woke up. And then I called back. He was in the studio with Ringo. And I said, what are you doing? Call me at nine in the morning. You know, then you get the rock star manual. He goes, I threw out that manual long ago. I mean, he can whip off that stuff. He's a legend. And those records are great. Axl Rose. Insane. But that appetite for destruction Paradise City alone, phenomenal. I'm not as much of a fan as what came after. I thought that Izzy added a huge element that has not been, and he's not been credited enough, but. Willie Nelson. You know, you go to see him, he plays that old guitar. Looks like it's going to fall apart. The older I get, the more I appreciate him. Metallica. Metallica, you know, they're the number one metal band. They're friends of mine and the manager's a friend of mine, so I'm close to that. But they're great. James Hetfield alone, you know, is you know Lars, great voice, great pushing the band forward. Hetfield is genius. Got it. And I'll close with David Bowie. You know, I, you know, it brings tears to your eyes. Genius. I mean, I, I don't know really what happened there. Um, he was obviously ill. It was very surprising when he died, the fact that he died at 69. I have become old enough to know that no one will be remembered. Malcolm Gladwell said 50 years from now, this is not long after Steve Jobs' death, Steve Jobs will not be remembered. He absolutely will be forgotten. There's, I, was, I used to get the New York Review of Books, and they had a whole book about a woman who was the biggest actress in the world, but she was the biggest actress just before the movies. No one knows who that is. No one knows who Bing Crosby is. I discussed the best comedies. People mention shit from the 21st century, okay? The, there will come a time when the Beatles won't be remembered. So it's a weird thing. I only wish that he could be alive to see the amount of love that his death generated. I believe that he didn't want to have that experience. This is just my own theory of, you know, having the victory lap, being sick, whatever. But I still believe that as talented and successful he was, he would be astounded at the outpouring of love over his death. Your proudest moment in show business. How, what do we, you know, I don't have a specific answer. And then the next thing would be proud. I mean, the things that make me tingle most are when I write about being, about an artist and I hear from that artist. That, those are the those are the elements that I love. Is there one example that moved you? I got you? many examples. I mean, let's talk Elton John. I this I was having us you know, like talking about in the last year. I've had two server problems, but they both came up today, and the server went down. And I'm emailing the guy who runs the server farm, and so I keep checking my phone. I'm in a bad mood because I can't write and send because the server is down. And then I get, e I'm checking my emails on a Sunday, I'm reading the New York Times, it says Elton John. I literally don't think it's Elton John because you can attach any name to something, okay? 
And, you know. So his, so his email address wasn't eltonjohnatme.com. No, believe me, it's not. <laughs> so the other thing about it is it was not about a music business thing. I mean, it was a reference. And, it, and I knew what I'd written was great. So it was great that it resonated with him. I had an identical story from uh, Dave from Pink Floyd. You know, he emails me, you know, it's like, hey, if, we, if I'm in L.A., can we get together? You know, Bonnie Raitt, you know, who's great. Um, Tom Rush. Um, you know, even even the guy from Imagine Dragons, you know, when they email him, they're reading, it's great. I mean, that particular case, I hadn't written about him, but they're reading. Or uh, Black Francis, Frank Black, uh, the Pixies. Um, you know, I've, I, I've been lucky to have a lot of these. I mean, you, you have weird situations, which I love, you know. Um, as I said earlier, I will not talk to anybody unless I'm in, um, introduced to them. I've had enough bad experiences. People are on guard, as they should be, unfortunately. What do you do if somebody reaches out to you, an artist, and they reach out to you, and they write you this beautiful thing, you're the best, I read you every day, and you read who it's from, and you're like, Oh my God, I can't stand that artist. I have no respect that, you know, for that artist. What do you do? That hasn't happened. Hasn't happened. I mean, I, I think the people I wouldn't have respect from wouldn't send that kind of email. I mean, they, they just don't. I mean, yeah. that's just not the kind of email people send. I mean, yeah, there are some people that maybe I'm not the biggest fan of their particular music, but they understand, you know, the other thing about it is, I'll tell you two stories they say. Um, First story, I'm with a guy, John Boylan. This is backstage at the Universal Amphitheater, which now no longer exists. And we're talking music. And he this wants is to a 6,000-seat venue that's a half circle that was beautiful that the Universal Studios it was great. It was even broke down and made was, into a, a, an attraction. Yeah, there. very recently. In addition, it was even better before they had the roof, but people complained about the noise. And they had a great like patio where you hung out backstage. And I'm with Boylan, and he wants to introduce me to Timothy B. Schmidt. I said, he says, you want to meet Timothy? No. He's not going to know who the fuck I am. Whatever. He brings Timothy over and he goes, you know, nice to meet you. He goes, nice to put the face to the voice, uh, put a face to the voice. I'm like, what the hell is this? He goes, well, I listen to, I used to have a radio show on Kalo, uh, SX, as I mentioned. I listen to you every Sunday night. This is doubly <laughs> wild. The fact that he listened. And then who did I go to see? Um, Might have been, was it Eric Church? No, it wasn't Eric Church. It was one of the country acts. Uh, maybe it was Eric Church and I'm walking around in the ring backstage at Staples Center this is about eight months ago, maybe a year ago and I run into my friend Bernie Cahill who uh, with his partner manager Zach Brown Band. I said, Bernie, what are you doing here? And he goes, oh, you know, the opening act is you know Dwight, Dwight Yoakam, I manage Dwight now he goes, let me introduce Dwight, Dwight. I said, no! <laughs> it's like, Dwight's got to have any idea who I am and he goes, oh, he'll know you. I said, no, no. I said, Bernie, no, no. <laughs> and he pulls Dwight over and we start to talk. I said, this is insane. Then all of a sudden he starts quoting shit that I wrote. And it was like, wow. I mean, like relatively deep shit. So when you have an experience like that, it's cool and you tingle. So I don't know if those are exactly proud moments, but that make it worth, those make it worth doing. Your biggest disappointment in your career and how it fueled you to be better and greater and be more successful. Well, I don't, I don't know if I put it. I could always use more money and more reach. I mean, my goal, first and foremost, is to reach more people. I reach a lot of people. 
There are a lot of things I would like to weigh in on. I mean, the problem we have, and this is evidenced by the woman who wrote for the New York Times, where they gave her access to the Bush administration, such that she wrote rationalizations for the um, Iraq war, that there were WMDs. And people, people said, well, if they're writing about it in the New York Times, it must be true. That's a liberal newspaper. So when pe people become enamored of the wealthy, and I'll tell you one thing which I would love to say is untrue, an incredible percentage of the wealthy are incredibly sharp. Okay, that's how they became wealthy. They know where the where the mines are buried. They know how the world works. Where there are a lot of people who have their um, hearts in the right place, who really have no idea what's going on, but fly in the private jet, have certain access. That's great. But you are the court jester. So the power of a journalist is you can speak truth to power. You can never make as much money as Mark Zuckerberg. So when you see heinous activity going on, or when you see something great, you want to be able to tell the most people, because I'm unfettered, I'm not taking any money from this, these people, and too many people are just, it's like, I was on CNN's site today, and they were talking, and there was an article about a destination. I can't recall exactly where the destination was, but it intrigued me. And I started to really go, wait a second, is this advertising or news? I think this is advertising, at least on the Yahoo homepage, if you read it, they say advertising. That's the world we live in. Everybody's fucking whored out. Uh, what advice do you have for the young artist who uh, is starting out? or I got the advice I always give. Give up. Give up. First of all, almost nobody succeeds. And there's a Don Henley song. It's not one of his famous songs. How bad do you want it? Not bad enough. These people have no idea how hard it is. A friend of mine wrote a book about Dwayne Allman, one of the great guitarists. He's the one who made Layla so successful. He used to take his guitar to the bathroom. John Mayer dropped out of college for a year to practice the guitar. Today, kids will say, well, I got this on Instagram. You're not willing to sacrifice and be lonely enough and work hard enough to make it. And now, as you referenced earlier, good is not good enough. You have to be great. In addition, as great as you are, everybody in the, in the world of entertainment business knows someone who's as talented as the superstar who never made it. Primarily because they didn't have the right personality. Maybe they didn't have the right people around them. This is the juggernaut you're going down. Are you willing? I mean, people are delusional. I could go on. I mean, people hate people. There's a whole business in encouraging artists. Pay me. I'll help you out. I'll do this. I'll do that, whatever. That's even worse, okay? The point is, it is almost impossible to make it. And if you... If, if you're looking for advice, you, you know, you've already lost the battle because the real people, they don't need any advice. You know, there's that song... By ACDC, it's a long way to the top if you want to rock and roll. Getting beat up, getting stoned, you know, broken boned. It's like, that's how hard it fucking is. And why do you want to? If you want to do it for fame, there's many. Look, yesterday on Howard Stern, Khloe Kardashian was on. And she was actually radiating some intelligence. And um, they were talking about her number of... Uh, Social media followers. In one case, it was 39 million from one of the sites, whatever, blah, blah. Saying what a big star she is. Yes, but she's not an artist. We could broaden art and say the way they manipulate the media, the Kardashians, and make money is brilliant, and it is. 
But is, that is not James Taylor playing something in the way she moves. You want to be famous. You want to be rich. There are many other ways you can do it other than art. In addition, most of the people who were household names were living in obscurity. Space Oddity came out six years before it was a hit. Ziggy Stardust was almost meaningless in the United States. And now we're lionizing David Bowie. I did, um, this is a great, fest, a great conference, one of the few I can say that about, the Folk Alliance. They, it's in a hotel and at night all the artists play in, um, in rooms and it's really incredible. But I gave a speech there and I'm, I'm telling sort of the same things that I'm saying now. And somebody raises their hand from the audience and says, are you telling me that if I make, if I, if I barely make five figures a year, that I'm unsuccessful? And I'm sitting there and go, how the fuck can you respond to this person? For those people who are math challenged, he makes just $10,000 a year from his art. I don't want to criticize him, but he's having no impact. That's not what I'm talking about. If you're not, you know, there's, there's a, there's, too much hype about world dominance, et cetera. But if you're not willing to do the slog to try to reach enough people to move the, push the envelope, move the ball, and have an impact, you're not really, you know, doing it. It's like, you know, I think, you know, this, another person I hear from, Cheryl Strait, wrote the book Wild, okay? If you read that book, it touches you. Before that, she had very little traction, okay? Do you have that in you? You don't. I used to play guitar. I watched the fucking Beatles. We all play guitar. My friend Mark, I was at his very close friend. I went to his house one day. We're playing guitar. He goes, now we're going to change keys. And I said to myself, I'm out. I don't have that facility. I can play the guitar and have fun. I can't. Maybe I can learn, but I, I can tell I don't have the instincts. There's certain other things I have the instincts for. This is not what I should be doing. That doesn't mean you can't buy a guitar and you can't do this and you can't do that. But if you think you're going to make it, dude, you know, or woman, it's like, and just because, you know, there's so much horse shit, believing in yourself is not enough. There's a, I'm going to make it, I'm going to do it, whatever. That's a component, okay? But that's got nothing to do with ultimately, it's got very little to do with ultimately making it. Bob Lefsitz, you are an animal. A part of me is embarrassed, but I think, it, you know, I don't think endings are crucial, but when you get them right, okay, it, it shocks the audience. It leaves them with, like, what happened here? Okay, now I really got to go. The uh, cameraman's phone is ringing. Um, <laughs> but, I, you know, as I say, it's, we've all been touched by art. We've all been wowed. And I want to know, let people to know that I have been wowed too, and I want to capture that experience. And if we captured that here, if people can get that feeling from me here, I've done my job. And you have done your job, and you will not be forgotten, and you have made an impact, and you have been <laughs> inspirational, and you are an incredible, incredible man. I just wanted the audience here to know how amazing you are. So if you haven't reached out to this guy, go to leftsits.com, and if you get there, you'll be able to download the newsletter. You'll be able to archive anything you want. It's been going on for several years. Bob, thank you so much for coming. Absolutely, Barry. It was a pleasure. Okay, as promised, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased the documentary I Killed JFK. 
It's an amazing story about the only man in history who has admitted to killing JFK. It's an incredible documentary, and you can get it at the website ikilledjfk.com. You can see the trailer, and it's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased the documentary this week, and one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Okay, let's do it. Landing on June Levecki from Langhorne, Pennsylvania. Congratulations, June. Also, I figure I might as well give away the same thing to somebody who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section as well. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. Okay, it's from DVD B. Miller, October 28, 2014, title Freaky Fresh, two out of five stars. Mr. Katz, man, I have listened to all of your shows, my brother, in the span of about three weeks. Your topics are undeniably undeniable. Thanks for your insight. David B. Miller, Chandler, Arizona. Thank you, David. I appreciate the comment. Congratulations. And as always, if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. This has been Barry Katz with Industry Standard. They say it's the glory. I'll scream your name. Put you on shoulders. Walk you to fame. You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same Pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. A fortune. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.